Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. You're listening to Fight Back from the Archives, an occasional series of classic lead-offs given by some of the leading comrades of Fight Back. In this talk from 2012, comrade Camilo Cajiz discusses the lessons of the Spanish Revolution. Okay, comrades, so the reason we're uh, looking at the lessons of the Spanish Revolution, it may seem, you know, do we just want to study history for the sake of history? I mean, most of us have probably been aware, you know, that the Spanish Revolution often comes up in discussion. It seems to be one of the most important uh, revolutions of the 20th century. Do we just want to study it for the sake of history? Or are there some particular lessons that we can learn from it uh, that we can especially apply to our work today. And I would argue that the Spanish Revolution, in fact, is very much reflective of the world situation that we are entering in, that we have entered in, actually, as Alex stated. We have entered into a revolutionary period. We are seeing a wave of revolutions, uh, and we're seeing the vast majority of the working class around the world beginning to come onto the scene of history. And the Spanish Revolution and the age we're living in right now is actually quite an interesting one because one of the things that, you know, we've been hearing so much over the last few years, especially those of us who've had the fortune or misfortune of going to university, um, is the fact that, you know, there's a lot of desperation around for many years of, well, why don't people get pissed off at the world? Why don't people get active, you know? Um... Why, why don't people realize the horrible nature of this system and try to do something about overthrowing it? You know, and, and then they'll come up with all sorts of ideas, all sorts of actions to try to you know, motivate the working class or motivate some movement, some sector of society to start playing an active role. Well, as we see today, you know, there's no shortage of people getting angry at the events of the world and coming onto the scene of history, trying to change their own fortunes, trying to change the situation that they live in. We have the Arab world. We have Latin America. We have Africa. We even have Britain. And even, even more unlikely than Britain, perhaps, you know, at least according to some of these individuals, Canada and the United States, where the working class, the youth, the oppressed are coming onto the scenes of history, showing very bravely what they are willing to do to be able to change their future, to change their future and the futures of their sons and daughters and of future generations to come. So if the issue isn't so much one of trying to motivate people to come onto the scene of history, there are other lessons that we must learn. And as Trotsky wrote about the Spanish Revolution, you know, his, he said that the heroism displayed by the Spanish workers was such that it could have made ten victorious revolutions. And, you know, we heard the interventions, the wonderful interventions, especially about Syria or Egypt, to see the courageousness of the masses today in these countries to try to overthrow their hated regimes 
and bring about a new, brighter future for the masses. But again, unfortunately, it often doesn't come down to heroism. It doesn't come down to passion to make a successful revolution. Because the Spanish Revolution, as we all know, ended in terrible failure. It ended in the, uh, in the uh, deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. It led to over 30 years of fascist dictatorship. And it was a blow to the international working class movement around the world. So, the Spanish Revolution shows that, unfortunately, it is not just a matter of heroism. It is not it's just a matter of wanting something enough. It's also a question of tactics, a question of ideas, a question of orientation, and most importantly, a question of organization that can provide the tools necessary for the working class to successfully come to power. And this is what we're going to say. You know, this is what we're going to talk about this afternoon. Uh, as a heads up, you know, Alex outlined the three necessary tasks that we needed to learn from world perspectives. <laughs> Before everyone thinks that Alex was overly clever, um, yeah, I will read what Trotsky, Leon Trotsky actually wrote in 1931, actually, as the revolution was beginning. He said that the main task in Spain was a party and again a party, and again a party. See, Alex, you're not that clever. I think it was a... <laughs> and after the defeat in Spain in 38, Trotsky said, the problem in Spain and the task of revolutionaries elsewhere in the, around the world continues to be a party, and again a party, and again a party. So if comrades don't get that lesson after today... I don't know what else we can do, to be honest. Before we begin to talk about some of the lessons in the Spanish Revolution, it's also very useful to understand the context of the Spanish Revolution, because Spain in the uh, uh, early 1930s was a very different Spain of today. You know, Spain is today, as, as Alex pointed out, is one of the largest economies in the Eurozone, one of the largest economies in the world, heavily industrialized country, uh, very advanced um, uh, productive capacity with a very large working class, as is most of the West European countries today. But Spain in the 1930s was very different. Spain was actually one of the most backward countries in Europe, largely peasant. You know, and we had a very interesting uh, discussion about farming and uh, peasantry uh, uh, and the peasantry in the car and the ride up from Toronto yesterday, and. When we're talking about the peasantry in Spain, we are talking about peasants, not just farmers. Uh, you know, basic feudal, uh, very close, uh, in many cases, feudal land relations in Spain uh, in the 1930s. A very, very backwards country, lagging far behind the more advanced capitalist countries like Britain, like France, like Germany. In Spain, most of the necessary uh, tasks of what Marxists call the bourgeois democratic revolution, you know, the bourgeois democratic tasks, uh, were never resolved, had never been uh, actually accomplished in Spain. Uh, and the most important, important one that had no, never been accomplished was that uh, of uh, land reform. 
you know, land, the, land, the question of land and land ownership in Spain had never been addressed, uh, and largely because the, uh, the, the, the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class in Spain, lagged far behind that of the other advanced capitalist countries. You know, Trotsky talked about, they talked about this in the, uh, in the theory of permanent revolution, how the countries who are coming onto the, onto the world stage, onto the world capitalist stage on a much later footing, cannot satisfy the tasks, the basic tasks of the bourgeois democratic revolutions that had occurred before. You know, when you look at the question of land reform, the separation of church and state, all of these other tasks that have been solved or at least addressed by the bourgeois revolutions of the 18th and early 19th century in countries like France and Britain and the U.S. were never addressed in Spain. Spain had much more in common with a colonial country than it did with the advanced capitalist countries. To address the question of land reform, for example, in Spain, would have meant a, an undermining of capitalism uh, as the landowners and the, uh, and the Catholic Church were actually the largest capitalists, were actually the largest members of the bourgeoisie in Spain uh, at the time period. To actually address the question of land reform would have been attacking that very same bourgeoisie that was supposed to have solved these issues decades before. Therefore, the capitalist, the capitalist class in Spain um, tended much more towards reaction than it would in many other countries, especially in their support of the church, of the monarchy, etc., um, it also meant that the landowner capitalist class rested on a very particularly narrow basis in Spain. It was a very, very weak class, much weaker than you would see in the advanced capitalist countries. This sort of late arrival of the bourgeoisie in Spain also meant that you know, Spain was a very much weaker country in terms even of the military and of foreign policy than of many of the advanced capitalist countries. In fact, Spain was actually defeated by Morocco in a war in the early 1920s, which, you know, uh, which was quickly followed by the global capitalist crisis of 1929, you know, the Great Depression. This, institu this introduced all sorts of... Uh, of uh, of a massive wave of strikes and protests in Spain, rocking Spanish society to its core. The uh, Spanish king is actually forced to set up a uh, Bonapartist uh, dictatorship under Primo de Rivera in 1929. The state, was, the state had to, uh, you know, as, as we understand with, uh, with Bonapartism, and I apologize to comrades that we are going to be discussing a few topics that unfortunately... There's not enough time to explain them in this session. But with, uh, with Bonapartism, what often happens is that the state, in a, in a moment of extreme crisis in society, can sometimes gain a certain degree of independence of the class struggle in an attempt to actually maintain the status quo. And this is what was happening in Spain. The bourgeoisie was too weak in Spain to, to consolidate its power and to satisfy the basic demands of the masses and the working class people. And, but the workers were also, the workers' organizations were also quite weak, and I'll get to that in just a moment. And so the Spanish king actually has to set up, oh, has to set up a, uh, a dictatorship to try to resolve this question. The dictatorship immediately bans the majority of the working class organizations in Spain, namely the CNT, the anarchists, 
and the Communist Party are all made illegal in Spain. The PSOE, which is the uh, Socialist Party of Spain, as well as the UGT, the main trade union federation linked to the Socialist Party, uh, are allowed to continue. And in an attempt to try to buy class peace, De Rivera even has to bring in Francisco Largo Caballero, who is the leader of the UGT, actually into the dictatorship, into the cabinet of the, of the dictatorship. But, and this is going to be interesting because Largo Caballero is actually going to pay, play a very key role in the revolution. But by 1931, by early 1931, um, there are, the, the strike wave in Spain continues to grow and grow and grow. You're seeing a greater mobilization of workers, you know, workers even demanding arms. And in local elections that are held in 19, early 1931, under pressure from the masses, the elections are almost completely swept by the PSOE and other Republican forces opposed to the dictatorship and opposed to the King of Spain. Uh, a wave of massive spontaneous strikes begins to occur. And, uh, and Trotsky notes the, the incredible heroism here being displayed by the Spanish workers, that the Spanish workers, despite an absence of leadership, have reached a certain point where the contradictions of society are so much that they have no other choice but to come onto the scene of history, to strike, to try to force and effect change. Does this sound familiar to any other time period? That we've been discussing. It is actually very similar to the wave today where despite an absence of leadership from the working class organization, we are seeing masses of people spontaneously coming out, trying to change the course of things. The only thing limiting them is the lack of a leadership and a lack of direction. And Trotsky becomes very interested in the question of the Spanish Revolution at this stage in 1931, way before the majority of other others become interested. And again, through this pressure of the masses coming out, through the pressure of all of these strikes that are occurring, the, uh, the dictatorship, uh, de, um, uh, de Rivera, is actually forced to sacrifice the monarchy um, to try to stem this revolutionary tide occurring throughout Spain. And Alfonso, the king of Spain, is forced to, to flee. So this was a tremendous step forward for the masses, and the only reason that the king is finally deposed, the king is, is finally deposed not because of the kindness of the bourgeoisie, but of the pressure of the masses, of the working class masses and the peasantry, coming into the field of battle, and kicking out this vestige of the old regime that the bourgeois had never been able to get rid of. This, us, this is what ushers in the Spanish Revolution um, in 1931. And as mentioned before, this was all despite the lack of a clear leadership being provided by any working class or socialist organization. And in the beginning... I think Alex had mentioned this briefly, uh, you know, during World Perspectives, that in the beginning, this spontaneity can seem like a party. You know, everything seems to come easy. You know, there's, there's, there's great hope, there's great illusion amongst the masses that change is being effective. You know, and, and in many respects, the spontaneity can also brush aside any of this old uh, 
uh, pessimism or, uh, you know, as, you know, as the infamous quote for Mark Ferguson shows, you know, the, uh, the um, decaying hull of the uh, labor, er, labor bureaucracy, you know, that tries to hold the workers back. You know, in Spain, the workers didn't have to deal with all of that and were ready to come to much more radical conclusions uh, in, uh, from the very beginning. But, as an you know, this is an example of dialectics at play. This, this advantage can quite quickly become a disadvantage, actually, that because of this spontaneity, because of this uh, freshness and, and inexperience to the old ideas, it also means that, you know, there, there does lack a clear perspective and a clear program of how to advance forward, for the revolutionary movement to advance forward, and how to organize itself. Um, you know, and, and this very much quickly became evident in Spain with the fleeing of the monarch. But the Spanish workers were left with the question now, well, well, the king is gone, what next? You know, does the king fleeing Spain mean that all of the conditions, you know, the lack of jobs, the backwardness of the material conditions, the land question, were any of these questions addressed? Had anything been actually resolved? So, this was the problem in Spain. Who would be able to lead the very heroic, very passionate Spanish working class forward? So this was the key to Spain, is who was going to lead the, the, the workers forward. Well, let's look at some of the organizations active at that time period. First, let's look at the Communist Party. You know, The Communists certainly had a certain degree of of appeal, a certain degree of the working class looking to them, you know, largely based on the success of the Russian Revolution. But also the communists, particularly in Spain, were constantly flip-flopping on all sorts of questions. And again, we're not going to get into Soviet foreign policy here, but uh, it, hopefully some comrades are aware of the uh, continual flip-flops of the Moscow bureaucracy that at certain points, you know, there was the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the communists had introduced the, uh, the, 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 third, the policy of the third period, this ultra-leftist stage, where everyone other than the Communist Party were considered to be um, uh, social fascists. And this was very much true in Spain as well, that the communists would often go around breaking up meetings of the Spanish workers, uh, meetings of the, uh, the Socialist Party. And in many respects, the Communist Party was very much discredited by 1931, and were actually a very small force uh, in Spain. You also had uh, the Socialists. Uh, the Socialists, the, the Socialist Party, the PSOE, which was the, uh, the, uh, the, mass, the predominant mass organization of the workers in Spain at this time period, but had also been discredited with uh, Largo Caballero having entered the, uh, the cabinet of the uh, prior dictatorship. You then had the forces of the international left opposition, the forces around Trotsky's ideas, but unfortunately they had a bit of a adventurous and immature infantile uh, behavior to them in that they uh, thought very highly of their own forces and decided that they needed to pursue a very pure form of Marxism, as they thought. And eventually this will come into a huge role into why 
the, uh, the so-called followers of the international left opposition were unable to form the lead revolutionary force in Spain um, and, and failed to provide the proper lead for the Spanish workers. Um, the PSOE does enter into a, Republican, a bourgeois Republican government following the fall of the dictatorship. And very quickly, this government and the PSOE again enter into an enormous crisis because none of the conditions that the Spanish workers have been fighting for, demanding, um, are able to be met. Um, and, and Trotsky explained that this sort of bourgeois, coal, this coalition between the socialists and the, uh, the Spanish bourgeois Republican leaders could never work, could never satisfy the revolutionary needs of Spain. He wrote that the Spanish Republicans remain entirely on the basis of the present property relations. We can expect from them neither the expropriation of large landed property, nor the liquidation of the privileged position of the Catholic Church, nor the radical cleansing of the Aegean stables of the civil and military bureaucracy. How could they purge these elements? Their entire power rested on the preservation of the existing bourgeois state. It's with this failure, with, it's with this failure to address the pressing needs and demands in Spain to advance the Spanish Revolution forward, that in the 1933 elections, uh, right Republicans and, uh, and the support of the clerical fascists of Spain uh, take power. Because by this point, the working classes are, are, um, are beginning to get disillusioned with this alliance of the bourgeois Republicans with the socialists. Workers' organizations, including Caballero, who, again, as I mentioned earlier, had been a, a member of the, uh, you know, had participated in the dictatorship, actually begin to secretly import arms for the defense of the workers. You know? um, the workers begin to realize that if they're going to resolve their problems, they're going to have to take the matters of the Spanish Revolution into their own hands in the fight against the right wing and the clerical fascists. One of the key battle points of the Spanish Revolution now takes place, and that's the setting up, the uprising of the workers in Asturias, and the setting up of the Asturian Commune. The Asturian Commune was a mass armed rebellion of the workers. Asturias was one of the cities in which the workers were the most were the most organized, the most aware of their tasks, um, and had this heroic uprising to establish this commune, which they hoped would be spread, this, this example would be spread across Spain. But unfortunately, the problem, the main problem in Asturias, as it would be you know, later on throughout the Spanish Revolution, was the question of leadership. That here are the workers prepared to take this heroic step forward, but no leadership to guide them on what to do next. The, uh, the greatest authority in Asturias was actually held by the anarchists, by the leaders of the CNT, the trade union federation linked to the anarchists. And as much as the uh, PSOE and the socialists can be condemned for their shameless, uh, uh, what was Trotsky's term? Kind of like a... a parliamentary cretinism in terms of allying themselves with the bourgeois republicans 
he was Trotsky was also viciously attacked viciously the uh, anarchist uh, anti-parliamentary cretinism, the anti-political cretinism of the anarchists that denounced this struggle between right and left republicanism as simply little more than a battle between between politicians. You know, this is not something that revolutionaries should care for. This is nothing more than a battle amongst bourgeois politicians. And this is a very, and this is unfortunately a very good example of why ideas, orientation, and tactics matter. Yes, we have no illusions. As Marxists, we have no illusions in bourgeois democracy. But we also understand, you know, that there is a certain role that the Marxists can play in Parliament, within the mass organization, and in particular understand that a victory by the right Republicans and the fascists would have been a colossal step back for the interests of the working class in Spain, for the interests of the revolution. The anarchists, the anarchist leaders in Asturias, even refused to tell their workers, their supporters, to not participate to help the fascists. In fact, unfortunately, this and, and, and this again really shows what happens when there is an absence of leadership. In some cases, anarchist workers through no fault of their own, through the fault of their own leaders, even uh, behaved as blacklegs in helping to ship the very armies, the very soldiers, the very weaponry that would eventually destroy them in Asturias. They would actually continue to work on the railroads, for example, as the Spanish regime would ship soldiers into Asturias, preparing a massive massacre in Asturias, crushing the commune, uh, which was a huge step back for the workers in Spain. Um, the, the defeat of the Asturian commune, actually, in the very beginning, could have almost seen as the, the end, the defeat of the Spanish Revolution, issuing in what's called the Vienio, El Bienio Negro, or the Two Black Years, that a massive set of programs that repressed the workers throughout Spain was introduced. There were a hundred death sentences carried out over the course of two years. An additional 30,000 workers and activists were imprisoned and tortured. Wages were reduced anywhere from 50 to 90 percent throughout Spain. Formal unemployment in 1933 was 536,000. This number was raised to 780,000 at the beginning of 1935, although unofficial unemployment could have been as high as 11 million. In these sorts of conditions, it could have very well seen that the defeat of the Asturian Commune spelled the end of the Spanish Revolution. But Trotsky noted that there was a very important thing about the defeat of the Asturian Commune, that unlike the workers in Germany, for example, where fascism had triumphed in Germany without a window pane broken, the workers in Asturias, and by, and by extension throughout Spain, were defeated in struggle. The spirit of resistance amongst the workers remained. The workers remembered what they had fought for, what they had lost, 
with the fascist victory at Asturias. And the workers were not going to rest calmly as the fascists consolidated their power. And even with the defeat of some of the revolutionary movements today, again, with the revolution being hijacked in Libya, or in Iran, or in Egypt, these were revolutions that had the vast the participation of the masses, not just a tiny elite, not just a tiny cast of, of army officials, not just a tiny cast of students or intellectuals. The masses in all of these countries have fought incredibly bravely, and even though their revolutions may have been hijacked now, they're not going to forget the lessons they've learned over the last year. This was the same case in Spain, where there were sectors that thought, okay, the revolution is finished, but we as the genuine Marxists understand that that consciousness remained in the workers, and in fairly short order, by 1936, you know, the workers were back on the scene of struggle, stronger and more mobilized than ever before. So it is very important that one of the other lessons we have to take from the Spanish Revolution here is that revolutionary struggle does not proceed along a straight line. There will be moments of setback, particularly as the workers are first getting their taste of activity, of power. There will be mistakes made. There will be some setbacks, but the question is, can the workers, and more importantly, the leaders, understand and learn from those lessons, reverse those mistakes, and carry the revolution forward? Despite the two black years, despite the, the uh, Bonapartism, despite the repression, bourgeois control in Spain continued to slip. As I mentioned before, the lessons, the, the memory of the Asturian Commune was very, very fresh amongst the Spanish masses' minds. Um, elections are finally allowed in 1936 as a desperate attempt to kind of stem off this pressure coming from the masses. And what results is a new government made up of left liberals and uh, left republicans, the PSOE, the Socialist Party, the Communist Party, and the PUM. The PUM, which I will address a little bit later, because the, uh, the actual history of the PUM, unfortunately, is incredibly tragic. Incredibly tragic, not just in its fate, but of the terrible mistakes that were made at the very beginning. Mistakes that if they hadn't occurred, that if the advice offered by Trotsky and some of the leaders of the left opposition had been followed, would have likely resulted in the successful completion of a workers' revolution in Spain, a healthy worker state in Spain, which could have meant that the entire future of the world, of Europe, of the Second World War, and all of the tragedies and crimes that have resulted from that, could have been a completely different story. I'll get into the Pessoa a little bit later, into the Puma a little bit later. And also... You know, and this is something, unfortunately, you know, we've quickly learned that our uh, anarchist friends on Facebook don't like to be reminded of this. <laughs> Guess who else joined the Popular Front government in Spain in 1936? The anarchists. The same anarchists who, during the Asturian Commune, had said, 
you know, politics is beneath us. All these bourgeois politicians are beneath us. Well, apparently not beneath enough to not have joined the Popular Front. The left party, the leaders of all these left organizations, of all these left parties, you know, were, uh, were desperately trying to convince their membership, you know, that, you know, don't worry, you know, we're in the Popular Front. We're the ones using the liberals, not the other way around. It's the poor liberals that were stupid enough to have allowed us into government. Which, again, why do I mention this? Because this was the same exact argument, for example, that was used in Chile during the Popular Unity Coalition in the early 1970s. It was actually even the same argument back that Jack Layton and co. were using in their agreement. Don't worry about a coalition with the liberals. We're the ones using Stéphane Dion. Uh, and this is also shows, you know, why we must learn from history. This is why we spend all this time learning these mistakes of the past. And we cannot afford to be repeating these same mistakes when we don't have to. Um, now, the, uh, the election of the Popular Front wasn't immediately a step back for the workers. In fact, the complete opposite. The election of the Popular Front as we've seen with the election of Popular Front governments in other countries, actually emboldened the workers quite a lot initially. Uh, the victory actually emboldened workers to carry out reforms by themselves. They went as far as freeing political prisoners by storming various prisons. There's, the, of course, the infamous account uh, by George Orwell, even, of how the, uh, the um, chefs and the wait staff in the restaurants, especially in Barcelona, banned the use of tips. You know, they said... We're proud to be doing this work. How dare you, you know, pay us you know, a scrap to be doing this. We're proud of what we're doing. Even the peasantry, unlike in Russia, the peasantry in Spain was actually had developed incredibly radical conclusions. If comrades haven't yet seen the movie um, Land and Freedom, um, I'm not going to say necessarily that it's the most fantastic piece of art, but... It certainly is a very illuminating film, especially the discussion, a, a particular scene where ordinary Spanish peasants you know, are discussing, you know, how can we collectively organize ourselves? How can we pool our resources to make our farming more efficient? You know, a far higher degree of consciousness than was exhibited, for example, by the Russian peasants following the October Revolution. This is, again, showing how Right, how fantastic the objective conditions were in Spain, how right the conditions were in Spain for a successful revolution, and that the lengths that the working class will go towards solving their own problems, their own demands. But again, as I mentioned at the very beginning, this was never the weakness in Spain. The weakness was never the, the will or the desire by the Spanish workers, by the Spanish peasants, by the Spanish masses to resolve their issues. They were willing to go to the nth degree to make their revolution successful. The part problem was the lack of a mass revolutionary organization that could provide the, tact the tactics and tasks needed for the workers to come to power, to seize state power, and decisively defeat the capitalists and the fascists, who again, I remind you, were a tiny minority in Spain, a weak minority in Spain. Unfortunately, 
the leaderships of the Pessoa and the Communist Party, the role they largely played in the Popular Front, was little more than, you know, we have to do something, you know. You know, we have to do something about this, but with no conclusive steps forward. How could they have any conclusive steps forward? All the tasks necessary would have been impossible to carry out while you had bourgeois forces in government. You know, how can you expropriate the landowners if your government, if your popular front government is made up of the landowners? How can you attack the state machinery when the bourgeois elements in your government rest on that state machinery to defend their property relations? And other mis another mis major mistake made by the Popular Front, and again by the leaders of the workers' organizations, was to take a very narrow nationalist view of the revolution. Again, talking about this situation, Spain was an imperial power by, in its own right, you know, a weak imperial power, but an imperial power nonetheless. But the, the Popular Front refused to spread the revolution to Morocco, for example, to address the burning question of national self-determination by the oppressed Moroccan masses. In fact, they took a very a, a, a quite hostile approach, quite hostile view to the demands for national liberation from Morocco. And what this allowed was for the fascists to actually gain a base of support in Morocco and to organize themselves, to organize their forces to invade Spain in 1937 and allowed the fascist movement this bastion of, of support, this safe bastion, that they were able to use that to be able to sweep up from southern Spain and viciously attack the working class. The Popular Front government refused to, you know, refused to distribute, distribute uh, you know, arms to the workers, and the workers ignored them. The workers, again, exemplifying the the passion and the the lengths that they were willing to go to, spontaneously formed their own defense militias. But again, the leaders of the Popular Front government told them to go home. Actually, they did more than just told them to go home, but I'll get that into a sec as well. The government threatened to arrest anyone who would dare to supply arms to the workers' militias. And what this meant was that the fascist gangs that were sweeping up from southern Spain had free reign, armed with membership lists. Oh, who else would have membership lists? The state machinery armed with membership lists, would slaughter workers and their families in this bloody orgy. Even in the face of this reaction, again, what could have been a huge demoralizing blow to the workers, what it actually resulted was that workers began storming police barracks, they began storming army barracks, seizing weapons, and defending themselves by any means possible. This even included, you know, grabbing sticks to defend themselves. You know, sticks and fists and anything that could be possible to stem off the fascist gangs. By the beginning of 1937, there was little police or armed forces left in Republican Spain. 
the, the, the actual state machinery had largely disappeared in large areas, uh, particularly in Barcelona. And most capitalists had eventually fled to fascist-controlled areas. In Barcelona, what we saw in the conclusion of 1936 and the beginning half of 1937 was that essentially the workers were running the city. Um, the workers had organized their own self-defense militias. They had seized all of the key points in the city and were essentially running Barcelona, one of the most important cities, arguably the most important city at this point in Spain. Um, now, I have to take a little bit of side uh, digression here to talk a little bit more about the Communist Party. Um, I don't think there's anything we can say that is too harsh on what the, about the crimes of the Communist Party internationally. Um, you know, with the rise of Stalin and the uh, degeneration of, uh, of communism in the Soviet Union. And particularly in Spain, the, the crimes of, of the Stalinists is, is incredibly pernicious. Um, and nowhere was this probably more evident than in Barcelona after the workers had seized the majority of the city. Uh, in my, in uh, May of 1937, the... Uh, the Stalinists, the Communist Party, attempted to recapture the telephone exchange in the city that had been seized by anarchist workers earlier in the year. Um, and, and this was, you know, a, 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 again, a massive storming of the telephone exchange, firing upon and trying to kill all of these other uh, revolutionary workers in Barcelona. What occurred was a general st strike throughout Catalonia, um, and even the international brigades, which were the forces that were organized by the Stalinists to come and defend Republican Spain from the fascists, refused to intervene. That the international brigades were no longer under the control of the communists. Um, but again, as was the example back in Asturias a few years earlier, the anarchists refused to take power in Catalonia because, as their quote was, we are against dictatorship. We are against imposing control over any group of people. The workers, largely, mostly anarchist workers, were absolutely prepared to take power, to take control of Catalonia. But again, their leadership said, no, we're not going to take power. Go home, lay down your arms. We're going to resolve this question with the rest of the Popular Front. For four days, the workers resisted their leadership, effectively running Barcelona and possibly Catalonia. But again, it's because of their leadership, because of their leaders, the Spanish workers, the anarchist workers were completely abandoned and power was once again given back to the bourgeois. It's a disgraceful fact that throughout the entire course of the Spanish Revolution, every single time that capitalism, that the capitalists were on the brink of defeat, why were, why were the capitalists able to come back? Always, at every single moment, the leaders of the workers' movements, the leaders of the anarchists, the leaders of the Spoon, the leaders of the Pesoy, would come to the rescue of the capitalist state every single time 
it appeared it was going to be overthrown by the working class. This is why when we say that the most conservative force in history, in society, is the leadership of the workers' organizations, we say this with the fact of all of these lessons, unfortunately, that we've learned through the course of history. That it is precisely the might of the working class that the working class leaders are most often afraid of. Um, it was the leaders of the anarchists in Barcelona, Garcia Oliver and Federica Monsani, which called the workers, the anarchist workers, to lay down their arms. You know? um, they told them, go back to work. Go back to your usual jobs. The anarchist center, the Casa CNT, which some of us, I think, have visited when uh, our international events used to be held in Barcelona, even refused to provide any support for the workers manning the barricades defending the city of Barcelona. Abandoned them and told them, go home. The battle is over. I'll also, I'll also, I still have to talk about the PUM, but this wasn't just a crime by the anarchist leaders. This was also on the feet of the leaders of the PUM, that the PUM had a certain degree of support, particularly in Barcelona at this time. The Poom could have simply told the workers, you know, take power. The power is there. You're already possessing the power. Nothing would have stopped the workers from coming to power. The example set in Barcelona would have spread throughout Catalonia and would have spread throughout Spain. You know, it would have spread like wildfire. And the revolution would not have been contained within the Spanish borders. It would have spread to France. It would have spread to Italy. It would have spread to Britain. It could have even spread to Africa. The power was there. Had the Poom taken power in Barcelona, they could have offered a united front against Franco and the fascists. They could have offered a united front, a genuine fighting force that was committed to battle to the death to combat Franco. The government at this point has had almost no troops that they could rely upon. Very rapidly, the masses everywhere throughout Spain would have rallied to the banner of socialism, would have rallied to the banner of resolving all of the questions and contradictions within Spanish society. But what the result from Barcelona instead of this was, was that the anarchist workers were incredibly disillusioned, the Stalinists, because of the call by their leaders, sorry, by, because of the call by the anarchist and Pumist leaders to disarm, lay down their arms and go back to work, were quickly rounded up by the Stalinists who began to disarm the workers. The workers' committees and collectives were all liquidated and destroyed. The Pum was made illegal. You know, they were accused that they were actually a secret faction working with Franco to defeat the Popular Front in Spain. The leader of the PUM, Andres Nin, who I'll get to in just a moment, was brutally, brutally tortured and murdered by Stalinist agents. The anarchists were rounded up and killed, again by the Stalinists. Who needed the fascists when it was the own forces of the Popular Front killing 
the brave workers of Barcelona and of Spain. To his credit, actually, the uh, leader who probably played the least worst role, I can't say best role because there is no glory in any of this, in, unfortunately, in the Spanish Revolution, but the least worst of the bunch was actually that former member of the dictatorship government, Largo Caballero, who uh, you know, uh, actually attempted, to the best of his abilities, to protest the Stalinists, to actually combat the Stalinist uh, repression in Catalonia. But unfortunately, this also sealed his fate. Um, the uh, Stalinists ga ganged up with the right-wing sectors of the Socialist Party, which uh, led to the downfall of Caballero as Spanish Prime Minister, and led to, um, to the installation of Juan Negrín as Prime Minister of Spain, a right-wing socialist coming to power. And Negrin, as described by the historian Hugh Thomas, was a man of the grand bourgeoisie, a defender of private property, even of capitalism. And it was under Negrin that the left socialists, the remaining anarchists, were systematically purged from all positions of responsibility, from all positions within the state. Negrin even, even brought back all of the old cronies who had abandoned Spain for the fascists, and brought back into the state machinery, dooming the revolution to the dictator to the uh, fascist dictatorship of Francisco Franco. Now, I've tried to interrupt this little historical narrative a little bit by pointing out, you know, that some very key mistakes that were made. I don't know if comrades here think, you know, was was the Spanish Revolution doomed from the very start? You know, was it? Was it fate that it was going to go down this path? You know, I would argue, we would argue, that this is far from the case. That in fact, especially at the beginning of this of the revolution, that 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 the workers' organizations, that the the power of the working class was actually quite a bit superior than that of the fascists. The revolution was defeated because of the mistakes made by the working class leaders, rather than the strengths of the fascists. You know, I already went through the crimes of the Communist Party. And again, we have to emphasize the crimes of the Communist Party because they have repeated this time and time and time again throughout the world. Again, I raised the case of Chile because I am very familiar. My parents are from there. And the crimes committed by the communists there are atrocious. They have been quite often the largest handbrake to the workers' movements. The communists can also be, the, the, the Stalinists can also be blamed for the massacre of one and a half million Indonesians with the rise of Suharto. It's very unfortunate that our Indonesian comrade Ted is no longer able to be here. To, no, not that, I don't mean that to sound ominous or anything. <laughs> <laughs> he's alive still. Yes, he's still very much alive. Um, the, cry, the crimes of Stalinism, unfortunately, have, were still not learned after Spain and were repeated in Indonesia, in China, in Chile, elsewhere as well. It was also the communists, for example, that were the ones who pressured Largo Caballero to retain a professional army. 
We just concluded a reading group of State and Revolution in Toronto, and one of the first demands of Lenin was no defense other than the defense of the armed people. This is a complete betrayal of everything that Lenin and the Bolsheviks stood for. And it was the communists who were not afraid to use this army to liquidate all of the gains of the Spanish Revolution. In his, uh, in his, mem in, in his uh, recollection of the Spanish Re Revolution, uh, Alan Woods writes, the communists were, were not afraid, not flinching from the task of bloody executioners where the workers attempted to defend themselves against the counter-revolution. Well, we can ask ourselves, well, why, you know, if they're supposed to be communists, why would they do this? Why would they kill their fellow workers? Why would they kill you know, the fellow revolutionaries? Well, unfortunately, a successful Spanish revolution also would have had an effect on the Soviet Union. You know, this is again one of the crimes, that if the workers had been successful in Spain, it would have served as an alternate model for this, the Russian workers, who were struggling against their own monstrosity of the bureaucracy there, and the future of the Soviet Union could have also been very different. The anarchists, as I mentioned earlier, time and time again, whenever the workers were prepared to take power, whenever the workers were ready to advance the revolution forward, the anarchists betrayed their own workers by being unbelievably hypocritical in their approach to the political question, to the question of power. As I mentioned earlier, they refused to take power in Asturias. Hell, they even refused to stop the shipment of arms and military forces against the commune. They refused to take power in Barcelona when the power was theirs. But yet, they had no issues of entering a bourgeois government, especially when the, the basis for a bourgeois government had largely disappeared in Spain. And we can never, ever forgive this treachery of anarchist ideology. And not that I condone or encourage comrades to waste too much time debating anarchists or other ultra-leftists on Facebook, because I really think there's much more better things to do with your lives than, than Facebook. But, you know, when they said, don't mention the Spanish Revolution, you know, it's, a, it's, like, a, it's like the old um, Faulty Tower sketch, you know, don't, don't mention the war, you know. No, we must mention the revolution. We must mention the Spanish Revolution. Because this is what your mistakes caused. That the workers could have taken power, the workers could have brought in a successful workers' state in Spain, and it was the treachery of the anarchist leadership that failed them. And the Pum, you know. The Pum were not Trotskyists. To call the Pum Trotskyists is incredibly shaming the name and the legacy of our ideas and of our organization. The Pum and Andres Nin started off, you know, sympathetic to the ideas of the left opposition, but had a very stubborn streak, refused to take the advice of Leon Trotsky. This is also an example to comrades. Sometimes it is worth, you know, listening to advice. Were you tortured by Stalinists? Um, in 1931, 
the uh, international left opposition, the left communists in Spain, were a larger force than the Communist Party. And you know, we're still talking only a couple of hundreds in Spain. And they were approached by the leader of the youth wing of the PSOE, of the Socialist Party, an organization of 100,000 militant youth. And they wanted to join the left communists. We would be so excited if we had a group of 100,000 who wanted to join us. We'd be very proud, actually. But Nin said, no. We don't make alliances with reformists, with non-revolutionaries. What would have been the difference had the left communists suddenly gone from 200 to over 100,000 militant youth, revolutionary youth, despite what Nin said, with roots to the unions, with roots to the Spanish working class, armed with the ideas of the international left opposition, if Nin had actually listened to Trotsky, what would this have meant for the course of the Spanish Revolution? And this is perhaps the most colossal mistake of the Spanish Revolution. Instead, what happened was that in, eventually the international, the, the left communists, realizing that they're being caught up and sideswiped by the course of the revolution in Spain, form a desperate union with a with a with a um, a, a, national, uh, a Catalan nationalist organization, the uh, Workers and Peasant Bloc, that happened actually to be most sympathetic to the ideas of the right opposition. That a more right-wing formation, tied also to bourgeois nationalism amongst the, Cat the Catalan petty bourgeoisie. As I mentioned earlier, the, the uh, left communists outnumbered the Communist Party in 1931. But by 1936, the PUM had only grown to a thousand. Meanwhile, the Communist Party had hundreds of thousands of members at this point. There was no excuse for the PUM to not have grown in this period, to have not formed the basis of a mass revolutionary party that could have led to the victory of the working class in Spain. And as we enter, as we have entered now into this new revolutionary period, we must make sure that we do not repeat the mistakes of Nin, we do not make the mistakes of the left communists in Spain, we don't make the same mistakes of the Pum. We cannot afford to be sectarian. We cannot afford to miss opportunities to reach out to radical youth, to radical workers, to the leading elements of the masses. And we cannot afford to be passive and just sit back while events pass us by. We are extraordinarily lucky, actually, in Canada. Hopefully no comrade ever says, oh, I wish, I wish Canada were different. I wish the Canadian workers were more like the Greek or Egyptian workers. We are very fortunate that Canada is lagging behind a little bit. Because we still could play that role here in North America. Not just Canada, the United States as well. We can still play that role. 
we have still a little bit more time, comrades, but we cannot afford to be tame at this particular time period. Spain is a perfect example of what happens when you don't have a revolutionary party armed with the correct ideas and tactics. It doesn't matter how advanced the workers are. It doesn't matter how willing the workers are to change their circumstances. It's not, it doesn't matter how much the workers are prepared to sacrifice. If you do not have a revolutionary party armed with the correct perspectives... All it will do is lead down the path of defeat. There is no final crisis of capitalism, comrades. Every single time, capitalism will find a way out. The way out may mean a hundred million dead, but it'll be a way out. The only way that we can make sure that we can bury this system is to ensure that the workers, we don't repeat the mistakes of the Spanish Revolution, that we finally finish off the capitalist system and bring about the state that will work for the benefit of the workers, bring the working class to power. So hopefully we can have a great discussion from this and learn some of the lessons and try to apply some of the lessons and mistake and the lessons from the mistakes to our work today. So I'll finish at that. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.